It's wonderful to be with you this week. Um, glad to be able to examine together how the kingdom of God intersects with world Christianity and world religions. Uh, yesterday, we said that one of the key characteristics of the kingdom of God is its remarkable diversity. But then just as quickly, we said that another characteristic is unity and diversity. So as Christianity has spread all around the world, we also have the spread of 45,000 Christian denominations. So we have the challenge of unity uh, amidst all of that diversity. The third um, characteristic, which I didn't mention yesterday, I'll just say at the beginning uh, today, is that the kingdom of God is characterized by suffering. And we prayed about that a few minutes ago. Um, nobody wants suffering. It reminds me of uh, a story my mentor David Barrett told me. Uh, he was invited to speak to a group of wealthy businessmen and businesswomen because they wanted to know where they could put their money to speed up world evangelization around the world. And so he got up in front of the group and he said, uh, based on our studies, we think the most effective means of world evangelization is Christian martyrdom. So there's a long silence in the room. Finally, someone in the back screwed up the courage and raised their hand and said, uh, Dr. Barrett, could you tell us the second most effective means of evangelization? So, but nonetheless, uh, the church around the world is undergoing uh, persecution um, in, in uh, over 139 countries. There have been significant uh, acts of persecution. Um, and there's been a contrast between the 20th century and the 21st century. Uh, you, know, you might know that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. And Christians were uh, suffered underneath uh, those regimes, fascist, communist, and, and other regimes. But in, in the 20th century, the most likely Christians to be persecuted were actually the Orthodox Church, who were under the Soviet Union. Um, and they were um, persecuted uh, largely uh, in the context of persecution from the state. And a lot of the persecution was in Europe. What's different in the 21st century is that persecution has shifted with Christianity to the global south. And the most likely Christians to be persecuted are Protestants and Pentecostals and independents, along with Catholics and Orthodox. So Christians of all kinds are being persecuted. But one big difference is that the persecutors are often your neighbors and not the state, although the state does still persecute in many places. So this is a major challenge. It seems like it's not possible after what should have been learned in the 20th century that we're still facing uh, so much persecution and suffering, but that is the case, and that's another sign of the kingdom. Okay, today we're going to talk about uh, the kingdom of God and world religions, and just before we do, we want to mention the fact that global humanity is under enormous pressure today. 
Uh, part of our global Christian identity is our deep concern for global humanity and for global issues. And these range, as you know, from poverty and injustice to water shortages, climate change, energy shortages, food, and a host of other issues that we face. And these are important for us as a Christian community to grapple with in the days ahead. We have it said well, excuse me, we have it said well by a Jesuit martyr from San Salvador, Ignacio Elacuria, who he asked this, what is, what is it to be a companion of Jesus today? It is to engage under the standard of the cross in the crucial struggle of our time, the struggle for faith and the struggle for justice, which it includes. Now, in evangelical circles, we've really suffered uh, under this dichotomy. We've had a difficulty bringing these together, even though probably our, our, our most important conference in modern times was the Lausanne Conference in 1974 that Billy Graham brought leaders from all around the world together. And it was very clear at this conference that there were two main things that we should care about. One is all of those people who've never heard the gospel before. And the other is all of the uh, social injustice around the world. And this was particularly a call from Latin America. And as evangelicals, these two are wedded together and we should see ourselves as a global community that is putting forth both of these uh, agendas throughout the world. Now, uh, this year, a book was published uh, by Mel Melanie McAllister, which tried to tackle these dueling narratives. The book, of course, here is called The Kingdom of God Has No Borders. And one of her conclusions, which I think she's correct, is that evangelism and social action were never very well integrated by American evangelicals. In the United States, we have the unreached people's narrative that I mentioned, which was really superseded by short-term mission outreach, while the social action narrative was supplanted by anti-abortion and anti-gay rhetoric. So instead of having this fully orbed um, agenda, biblical agenda, to go into the whole world and to bring justice and mercy, we have this artificial bifurcation uh, here in the United States, which we're still grappling with. But I think we can say rather definitively that the kingdom of God is characterized by its presence among all peoples. Yes, global Christianity is diverse, but there's still hundreds or thousands of peoples with little or no Christian presence. This provides the rationale for sending missionaries to peoples with no witness, which we call frontier missions, and it culminates in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, which we heard read yesterday. Uh, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, uh, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that's clearly a characteristic. But another characteristic is justice and mercy. 
Micah 6, 8 reads, He has told, us, told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and mercy and walk humbly with your God. In the World Evangelical Alliance, we have the Micah Challenge, which is a way to bring that call together, that biblical call. We have justice conferences, and there's hundreds of evangelical NGOs engaged with all sorts of human problems and challenges. And welcoming the foreigner and the stranger are major themes throughout the scripture. It's really, really clear, crystal clear. Now, N.T. Wright wrote in, in his book, How God Became King, we have lived for many years now with kingdom Christians and cross Christians in opposite corners of the room, anxious that those on the other side are missing the point. The one group with its social gospel agenda and the other with its saving souls for heaven agenda. He says the four gospels bring these two viewpoints together into a unity that is much greater than the sum of the parts the parts. And our love for the scriptures is what brings us to this uh, integral mission, as our Latin American brothers and sisters call it. But we do have a problem. Just a, a poll not even a month ago showed that white evangelicals in the United States are the least friendly to immigrants and refugees. The most friendly are the religiously unaffiliated, the non-religious. So something is upside down uh, among our community, and we really need to grapple with this, since this kind of a viewpoint does not represent uh, the kingdom of God. So now let's transition with that in mind to how we interact with people in world religions. Um, we published this book a few years ago. Uh, one of the first questions we're asked whenever we present is, where did you get all of these numbers? So we wrote a book on where all the numbers come from. Um, it's, not, it's not a bestseller. Yeah, so, um, but if, if you have trouble sleeping at night, I recommend that you buy this and just read through the pages. Everything will be okay um, pretty quick. Okay, so just a brief word about where the numbers come from. Um, they come from censuses, surveys, and polls. And we're fortunate that half of the censuses in the world ask people what religion they are. And some of the larger countries, like India, has been asking that question for a long time. And that is very, very helpful to us. We don't always believe the results. There's reasons why people might not be honest or might be afraid when they check the box on the census. And we want to be very careful about that. But it is extremely helpful to have all of these uh, censuses. But then we also take um, data from the religious communities themselves. And these communities publish all sorts of books every year uh, with statistics and with comments about membership, sometimes the number of churches and, and the number of pastors and, and all of that sort of thing. So this is another very, very rich source of information for us. And the fact that all of these do not agree is what makes our job interesting. So we just spend hours and hours trying to figure out uh, what the actual situation is. And it's a life or death situation in many places. In India, 
uh, we feel that the census undercounts Christians. Uh, in Egypt, we feel that the census undercounts the Christian community, and we want to stand up and say, we think this is the true size of the Christian community. And so um, it's life or death for many people, uh, this, this subject. Now, we also have to be very, very careful with numbers, okay? Uh, and this reminds me of a story I heard. There was an African mother who had already had three children, and she was pregnant with her fourth child. One evening, her, the eldest daughter said to her father, Do you know, Daddy, what I found out? No, he says. The new baby will be Chinese. What? Yes, I've read in the paper that statistics show that every fourth child born nowadays is Chinese. So you can get confused. Get a little bit confused in what you might expect uh, from numbers. So I just want you to be very cautious as we go forward. Okay, yesterday we contrasted changes in the uh, global Christian community over a hundred years. Let's do the same with the, uh, the global, uh, sorry, the global religious community. Um, there's been two major changes. Now, if you studied this for a while, you'd see, just if you can't even see the labels, you can see that two colors have changed over this time. Uh, one is, is the uh, shrinking of the Chinese folk religionists from 22% of the world's population to only 6%. We have to think, why would that have happened? And at the same time, we have the rise of the Muslim community from 12.6% to 22%. So if one community shrinking and you have another growing, uh, you probably are aware of the fact that Chinese religionists did not all become Muslims over that period. So that probably is not the explanation. Why did the Muslim community grow? Well, one reason is that they had lots of children. So this is one of the main ways that you can grow a religious community, is to have large families. So some of you might need to talk about this as a strategy after the service, okay? Um, uh, conversion is another way, and you, another group can speak about that in another place in the chapel as well. Okay. What about Chinese folk religionists? Well, we have, excuse me, we have the rise of communist China over this period, and we have many who would have been part of this community who now have become non-religious or even atheist under communist China. Um, one of the things you might be aware of is that there's a resurgence of religion in, in the more recent period in China, and there's actually a rise of Chinese folk religionists Again, after cutting off uh, in the middle of the century, things are moving the other direction. And this is probably the most surprising trend uh, in world religion. So back in, 99, back in 1900, uh, or 1910, 99% of the world's people were religious, okay? And it might not surprise you that by 1970, just 80% were religious. So a huge increase in uh, people who have left their religion, who become agnostic, who don't, you know, who don't know or don't necessarily believe anything, plus a group that have become militantly atheistic at the same time, right? That's something you're familiar with. What you might not realize is with the collapse 
of communism, things have been moving in the other direction uh, ever since the mid to late 70s. And the world is actually becoming more religious every single day. Uh, that's a surprising thing. Um, and part of that, again, are, sh are shifts in China, India, places with lots of people are, are driving these trends. We know if you go to visit Sweden, that there are more and more atheists every day. But Swedes aren't a very large part of the human population, so as hard as they try, they cannot drive these, these uh, global trends. It's mainly China and India and other places like that. So that's something to be aware of. The world's becoming more religious. Um, and the world is becoming increasingly religiously diverse. And the most uh, diverse place on the planet, of course, is Asia. You can see it with this map here. All these different colors represent different religions. You can see Christianity is blue, but Islam green, Hinduism pink, Buddhism orange. And then we have shamanism uh, in Mongolia, which would be a brownish tint. And then the non-religious in China. That's what you're seeing there in China. So you have an amazing religious diversity. And a place uh, like Singapore is the most religiously diverse country in the world. Then countries like France further down. Then countries like the United States. And finally, on the other end, are countries like Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan, um, there was a Christian community there. They've been leaving over time. Turkmenistan is increasingly Muslim every single year. But there are not many countries like that. Most countries are moving in the other direction of becoming uh, increasingly diverse. I mentioned Singapore, which is a place that I've lived on a number of occasions. And uh, Singapore, uh, when I was there actually in 2017, there was a poll that was taken of Singaporeans. It was in the newspaper. And it said that nine out of 10 Singaporeans are comfortable li living and working with people of other ethnic backgrounds and other religions. Now, I just read a study in the United States showing that only about one out of 10 people in the United States are comfortable. And then I thought, why am I, I'm going to these uh, churches in Singapore and what do I see on the shelves everywhere but books written by people in the United States telling Singaporeans how to get along with people in other religions. So I thought, even though there are, actually there are very good uh, authors in the United States on this subject, don't get me wrong there, but it just seemed sort of backwards to me that I, I personally having lived there, I would like to read books by Singaporeans about how to get along. And living in Thailand as well, I, I said, you know, Thai people shouldn't be reading Western texts on other religions, they should be writing the text, telling us uh, what to do. Because I think it's more intuitive uh, in Asia about how to get along with people in other religions. I remember um, in, in 1979, I left a, a suburb of Minneapolis uh, to go to California to join Youth with a Mission, a mission agency. And then I ended up in Thailand uh, right after the Cambodian genocide on the border. Uh, but I went all the way to Thailand before I met a Buddhist uh, or a Thai person. Uh, that was back in 1979. 
Now, my, my mother still lives in the same house that I grew up in, in that suburb. And I went to visit her in August, and I, I was uh, in, in my old bedroom where I grew up, and I opened the window, and I looked out the window, and there was a Thai person standing there. Because a Thai woman moved into the house next door to my mother. So in 1979, I flew all the way to the other side of the world to meet somebody. Now there's somebody living right next door to my own, to my own house. That's a big change. And by the way, it would have helped me to talk to a Thai person before I went to Thailand. So this is a very positive development. But a lot of people in this country think this is a negative development. But for those of us who are interested in global Christianity, global mission, and, and, and preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth, this is a very, very positive development. Because we need more, more contact, as you'll see in a couple of minutes, with people uh, in other religions. So I'm really excited about it. And I actually think the one way to, to, um, to talk about this is that another characteristic of the kingdom of God is humility and weakness. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, I, and living in Thailand, I thought this describes the Thai church. The Thai church is humble. It's weak in the sense that it's very small. But it's, it's a very good group of people to ask about the power of the Holy Spirit in, in preaching and in reaching out to others. And I just wonder if we shouldn't really expect the leadership for interfaith interaction to come from those who have already grown up and learned how to get along with people in other religions. I think that's where I'm expecting uh, leadership to come in the future. Uh, African-American theologian Anthony Bradley writes this, humanity as a whole, according to Bavink, is the image and likeness of God. In the kingdom, there is no such category as us or them with respect to understanding our humanity. The interconnectedness of human persons is the image of God, and if kingdom-oriented Christians seek to bring principles of the kingdom to bear in society, then the categories and distinctions that cause us to see ourselves as not in solidarity with certain people groups will be obliterated. I think this is, the, this is where we're going in the kingdom of God. Next, we want to give attention to the fact that one of the reasons that there's so much diversity is that people are on the move all over the world. And the Pew Forum did a study showing 210 million people, about a third, 3% uh, of the world's population was on the move. Uh, and another uh, group in, in the UK studied this, and their conclusion was, Never have so many people been on the move, and never have they been so unwelcome. So this is a challenge we face. And, and the religious makeup of these people on the move is a little surprising. Because Christians, as I told you yesterday, represent about 33% of the world's population. They actually represent half of all migrants. And another disproportionate uh, number is Muslims, who are far above their proportion of the world's population for being on the move. Christians and Muslims are, are on the move. And a lot of people in these two communities are from the global south moving into the global north. So that's something for us to consider. 
Um, the other thing is that these two religions, Christianity and Islam, only represented a third of the world's population in 1800. Uh, they have now grown today to, to over 55%, up to 57%. And we think that before the year 2100, two-thirds of the world's population will be either Christian or Muslim. So these two communities are communities to be paid close attention to as we think about uh, the world's religions. Two other communities that we should also pay attention to are Hindus and Buddhists. Both are really over a billion in size, especially if you, if you think about um, combining categories a bit. Uh, and, and both of these are in huge diaspora movements around the world. Through the, the, just a, a month ago, um, statisticians said that the Indian diaspora, the South Asian diaspora, is now the largest diaspora in the world. And right behind it is the Chinese diaspora, which would be part of that Buddhist and Chinese folk religionist diaspora around the world. So just again, the movement of people, whether they be Christian or not, is one of the most positive developments in mission today. Okay, that's one of the things we're, we're excited about. Now, why is that? We could talk about a few trends in global mission that we have to pay attention to. Um, sorry, one of those is that most Christian outreach never reaches non-Christians. 85% of all Christian evangelism is aimed at other Christians, does not ever reach non-Christians. And part of the explanation for that is the unanticipated success of Christian mission in the 20th century and the invitations that come for Christians to be in partnership with other Christians around the world, which is a very, very positive development. A less positive development would be the splitting of Christianity into thousands of denominations, each feeling like the other denominations are a major target for evangelization. That, that is where the difficulty lies. Now, a positive development is that missionaries go from everywhere to everywhere. These are Brazilians preparing to go to North Africa. And so we have groups of Christians from uh, many different countries in the Global South who are moving uh, to other countries uh, in the Global South or in the Global North. There's just a lot of movement of people. It's really hard to keep track uh, of where everyone is. But that uh, as well is a positive development. Let me, let me just say here that one of the, I think one of the most positive experiences in my whole life in mission, which was sort of accidental, was in Thailand uh, when I mentioned that I went all the way to the other side of the world. I was on a little team with which I was the only American. There were Malaysians and South Africans and Swiss people for some reason and just a, a lot of, a lot of uh, variety. We were from all over the world. And I'll never forget going to witness to Cambodians uh, in one of the camps there. And one of the Cambodians took me aside and said, who are you people? You're, you're from all over the world. You, you know, there are so many national agendas being expressed in the camp. And they said, what is it with you that you love each other and that, there's, that you represent all these different nationalities? And I thought to myself, yes, what is it? What is it that, that uh, we have to offer? And I, I would 
It's not possible, but I would love to see every team that goes out be a multinational team. Say, we're here, we represent global Christianity. We don't represent one country. Um, and I see a real strength to that. It's not practical everywhere, but I've never gotten over what a powerful witness it was to bring the nations to, to um, another um, people group that had never heard of Jesus before. Another thing we should consider is that mission to the slums and around the world is increasingly important. You know, half the world's population, more than half now, is in the world's cities. Uh, the UN says one in six people globally lives in slums, but we estimate that only one in 500 Christian missionaries lives in slums. Um, and we think that, you know, in part, you know, there's Christian slums, that's part of, part of what the, the challenge is. But there are also large Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu slums. And it's not uh, necessarily a pleasant place to live, but it's critical for the future of Christian mission that people uh, move into the slums in an incarnational fashion. And we've seen, seen the, the positive results of that uh, in several places, including Bangkok, where, where I have worked in the past. Perhaps the most important thing for you to remember from today is this, though. And that is, uh, our research has shown that 86% of all Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists do not personally know a Christian. And we just don't see how the gospel can be preached to the whole world if there's a gap, a personal, a gap of friendship, a gap of personal contact. Uh, I think this is the biggest challenge that, the, that is faced uh, by the Christian community. Um, which brings us to our seventh um, observation that the kingdom of God is characterized by friendship and hospitality. It's a face-to-face -face religion. This is a picture of our dining room, and these are my wife's, wi my wife's, no, just one wife, my wife. These are not my wives. These are my wife's students, okay. And we had them at Thanksgiving, and, and these students were, were largely non-Christians from China and Japan and other places, and we always asked, we had them for, for Thanksgiving, we said, have you ever been in, a, or how long have you been in the United States? Two to four years, five years. Have you ever been in an American home? No, we have not. We've never been invited. First time. Always, every year like this. But it was so great to have uh, uh, people in our home and to, and to uh, offer hospitality. Um, now, we, that, uh, Dana Robert, uh, a friend of, of ours, uh, says in her new book, Faithful Friendships, that friendship is a sign of the kingdom of God. I believe that is the case. Uh, John 15, we read, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for, the, for their friends. Uh, I think that that's, that's really important. And commenting on that passage, the Theology of Work Project says this, it is not simply that Jesus will advance his mission through a web of interpersonal relationships. Weaving a web of relationships is the point of the whole enterprise. So we don't make friends for some other purpose. We make friends because that's what, the, what followers of Jesus Christ do. And this, I think, is the missing dimension. Now let's run through some things that we should think about as we wrap up. Let's love those that no one else will. Let's show compassion 
to the poor and the needy. Let's rescue those who are being swept away. Let's be the first ones to be there at the scene of natural disasters and other disasters. And let's welcome those who are on the move. Let's welcome the stranger and the foreigner. Let's go to new peoples. Let's, let's send missionaries where there's no gospel proclamation or justice. Um, let's deepen our knowledge of world religions. Effective Christian outreach and hospitality is supported by the understanding that Christians have of other religions in the world. Let's also strengthen our own theological understanding on world religions. We need to do that at the same time. How about let's stand up for Jews around the world. Let's combat anti-Semitism with our Christian community and our love for the Jews, our love for all peoples. They're in fight, fighting increasing persecution all around the world, including in largely Christian countries. So this is something we can do. For sure, let's empower Christians uh, to live in religiously diverse communities. Uh, let's train people to do this, and let's listen especially to those who have grown up in, in uh, interreligious communities. And finally, let's encourage friendship and hospitalities. Let's love humanity and invite everyone into our homes. With that, I'd like to invite uh, the team up. What a better thing to do with this slide than to have uh, communion together today. Thank you.